Good afternoon, everybody. It's Jared Van Heest from the Habitat Podcast. Coming at you from Michigan today. Jesse, are you there? Yeah, how you doing, sir? Oh, not too bad, buddy. Not too bad. Just uh, cracked a cold one and going to record another podcast. Yeah, yeah, same here, man. It's a nice Sunday out. Still cold. Waiting for it to warm up, but... um. Yeah, getting some stuff done around here, and excited to get going here with our uh, guest. Who do we got on today? Yeah, I'm glad uh, we could squeeze this in today. I know you and I are both busy, and so is our guest on this Sunday, but can squeeze it in. It's you know, makes everybody, uh, or works out good for him, so that's, that helps. But uh, Yeah, yeah. We are going to have Nick Percy from Killer Food Plots on today. Remember, remember Nick? Oh yeah, yeah. I remember. Uh, well, I remember his seat more than him. But uh, <laughs> that time we met, super nice guy, very knowledgeable about food plots and seed varieties. And uh, his product's been working great for us. We've been using it along with some others, but it, it really seems to do the job. Yeah, um, I think that's a good thing. I think if I you know, owned a seed company and people remembered my seed before me. I think I'd be happy with that, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not saying he's an ugly guy or anything, but <laughs> I will let him try to defend himself on that one. He's uh yeah. he's a real busy guy, he's got a lot going on. Um yeah, like you said, we've planted his seed for what, two seasons now? And we've been pretty happy with it along with some others. Um you know, some some stuff that we had to grab last minute or whatever, but uh, I'm excited to hear a little more about it. Um, we're going to dive in. Have you been doing any habitat work recently, or what have you been up to? Yeah, a little bit. Um, like we talked last time, I've been talking about my family up north property, and I finally got up there and uh, started dropping a few trees, opening up the canopy, and... Um, actually started making a trail around the actual perimeter of the property, A, for hunting purposes, access, and then, you know, in the summer the kids can ride their dirt bikes around the property. Um, so nothing to do with habitat there. But, but, yeah, just dropping a few trees, opening up the canopy, and uh, I've marked out where I want my food plots to go. So hopefully in the next week, couple weeks, month, uh, it's still early yet to put in plots. Um, we'll get up there and start tilling some ground and definitely going to need a lot of lime. There's a lot of ferns up there, which I've been told if there's ferns, you have a real acidic soil. So I definitely got to do some testing up there. Oh, is that uh, is that true? I have, I have no idea. That's what I've heard, so I'm going to say, yeah, it's true. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you believe Kinda everything you hear or what? No, no, I believe, nah, depends. No, that depends doesn't, what, that doesn't make sense. I know, but, uh, no, it makes sense up there, and it's it's pretty sandy up there um, in most spots okay. that I noticed. So could be a challenge to get the right product to grow, and actually I'm going to kind of ask Nick, you know, uh, if he's done any work in northern Michigan and see what he recommends. So yeah, That's a good idea. I think um – I think we're going to catch him in between an appointment and another appointment today. He may even be up north, so that might be a good 
a good idea on uh, how to pick his brain there. That sounds good, though. Um, you could use those dirt bikes as little discs, you know what I mean? They're roughing up the soil. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and my nephews and sons rip around for me. Exactly. Well, you should be getting a start on it, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it gives me something to do when the family's up there, so it gets me out of the cabin. Awesome. I got to say, uh, remember those acorns I was telling you about that we planted? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the kids? Yeah, so I my dad came over, and uh, I went to show him and tell him about them, and I go over there, and like I had all the soil packed down on each little pot, and they're all dug up and loose. I'm like, what? And it turns out a squirrel or a chipmunk or something went in and stole every single acorn we planted. Really? <laughs> Dude, I couldn't even make this up. I was just dumbfounded. They were probably watching you from, like, the neighbor's <laughs> tree planting these things and were just laughing at you. Uh, you're probably right. I mean, how... They had their feet because I don't I don't know can squirrels sniff out an acorn like that and a, I don't know dude they must they must be able to I mean I put them down um, you know inch into the dirt or so covered them up packed it all down and uh, put them in an area by my house where it gets some morning sunlight and um, a place where I'll remember to water them and that type of thing and I mean, we were talking like right by my front door and boom they're all gone that's hilarious you're gonna have to. Like, put them in a box with, like, and cage it. Yeah, exactly. Some sort of screen or... I don't even know. I just... I can't believe it. So now we got to go find more. <laughs> <laughs> Gives you something to do, right? Exactly. Exactly. Keep the, kid, keep the kids in, involved. Oh, yeah. They were so mad. They, they were talking about shooting the squirrel and eating him because he did that. <laughs> I said, all right, we'll do it. So I love it. Well, all right. Let's, let me uh, uh, let me try to get a hold of Nick. All right, try to get him on. Yeah, let's get let's get Nick on the line. All right, stand by. All right, Nick, are you there? I am. What's up, buddy? Jesse, you there? How are you? Yeah, yeah. How you guys doing today? Good, good. Thanks. I'm doing good. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you having me on. No problem. Uh, you sound like you're pretty busy today. What you got going on? Oh, just out looking at properties and evaluating some new projects for food plots and some timber cleanup activities we need to do. Uh, also, getting uh, near the time of the year that's best to go and chemically treat and mechanically remove autumn olive and some other evasives. So we were just assessing a property that needed... A little bit of all that stuff done on it. Awesome. And where are you doing that at? Uh, we were up in Nuego area today, Nuego, Michigan. So Very nice. I'm very familiar with that area. Grew up in uh, West Michigan myself. So used to deer hunt in Fremont a lot. Oh, yeah. Not too far away. Fremont is pretty close to this uh, customer's property, so... Yeah, he's he's a pretty uh, pretty extensive property management uh, focused customer, which is really exciting for us that he gets it. He's been doing some trial and error type things himself for several years, so 
first time I met him, he actually had open heart surgery, and he's 14 days home from that, and he's still itching to get out there and get his get his project back up and rolling after uh, he did a lot of the work has been done over the winter months, and he uh, just wants to make sure it stays on track, and he's not going to be physically capable to go out there and do a lot of the work that he would normally do, so he contacted us about helping him out, so... I'm excited to get in there. He's uh, said he's 72 years old and oh, wow. just a cool guy. And walked into his house. He's got bear mounts and deer mounts and turkey fans and stuff everywhere. And just <laughs> you know, listened to a couple stories. And so it took me took me a little bit longer. You know, I always going to take that time. So I it's a good day. It's Sunday. Probably shouldn't be working anyway. So we'll make it a laid back, easy going kind of uh, <laughs> customer interaction. There you go. <laughs> So I love it. I love it. So Nick, uh, you know, we we've been uh like Jared, you've met Nick a few years ago and I met him through you and um I actually met him with you. Started. Remember? Weren't you with me at that trade show? Yeah, oh we were we were yeah, trade show. Yep. When you were trying to sell him bottles and bags. Yep. <laughs> That's how we first Yep, that's how I first started talking. So, Nick, what I understand is you own this company, Killer Food Plots. Um, I want to give the listeners a little background and how you gotten started with that and what you guys do and, and your personal background. Yeah, so I, I'm i actually an engineer by trade. Um, I've been doing that for too many years. Uh, I started the whole food plotting thing was actually indirectly inspired by several of my buddies who I fished with. I worked with a few of these guys and we fished all the time and I had a green thumb and they knew that and they asked me, uh, they were all hunters and they said, hey, would you consider planting some food plots for us? And I said, well, I really don't know anything about, you know, what that entails for deer, but I'll certainly get invested in figuring it out. So um, I did that and in the process of spending quite a bit of time out there. Uh, we gave up a little bit of fishing and we started kind of do the the food plot thing. I started shooting my buddy had an, uh, an extra bow, uh, compound bow. I started shooting that and really fell in love with the shooting aspect of it. And I failed miserably, of course, at the food plotting for the first couple of years and was not <laughs> successful at all. And, uh, you know, like most things that, you know, we do a lot is, you know, we look at a situation, we go, oh, more must be better. So next time I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. You know, we're met. More is better. And so <laughs> yeah. after about two years of having minimal to zero success, depending on where I was trying to put these food plots, I started asking some questions, and and I um, I actually got involved with um, working for a company that's one of the biggest uh, seed companies in the industry. And I went to work for them, and uh, – I, well, I started picking their brain for information and asking a lot of questions, and, you know, they were intrigued by my level of interest and um, wanting to know more and just kind of developed a relationship, and I actually went to work for them and went down to the research facility several times and started selling their products and utilizing. My business essentially started as an installation business then, so I migrated from doing this for my buddies as I started to have really good success. Um, other guys in the area and people they knew said, hey, I want a food plot, I want a food plot. So I started doing that as a side 
well, cash business, and then I decided to get legitimate and get a tax ID number, and then we had to start all over again. So, um, and then it just goes still, downhill from there. Yeah, right, right. Well, I still wasn't really doing the advertising that I'm doing today or whatever to, to you know, be able to get out there and help people. But my motivation has always been about is about helping individuals. I would soon, just as soon be able to share the knowledge um, and the wisdom that I've gained over the years with people so they don't have to fail miserably because it's so frustrating. You know, food fighting is a really cool thing. And it's not that it's very, it's not that it's difficult. It's just, it's a little bit different. You know, it's a different way of, um, approaching your property. It's, it's different than buying corn or seed products or, you know, some type of a bait and putting it out to lure the deer in. You know, food potting takes a little bit more energy. But what I feel and or for me personally, what drew me to is it's, it's so much more rewarding, right? You went out there, you did the work, you spent the time, you learned learned a cool skill, and then it starts to grow. And when it starts to grow, there's just this huge sense of satisfaction of what you were able to do. And then all the deer just continue to come to it over and over. And, and I think it's a much more sustainable um, food source, and it seems to be much more repeatable than just your average attractant type product, you know. Um, Definitely. And, it, and I think it adds a level of excitement while you're sitting out there hunting. If you're near your food plot or overlooking your food plot, you just know that there's a, a much higher chance that something's going to come into that um, food plot, you know, potentially versus a, a food plot or a bait pile or something as well. So. Well, it's, it's just more natural. I mean, it's... Especially here in Michigan, you're never going to shoot a big deer over a pile of corn, you know? <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. Well, and, you know, I guess early on um, in the, this whole process of kind of working, you know, this little side business thing for myself, I decided and ended up uh, decided to raise deer. I really needed a, a test case, if you will, and um, I worked with my cousin. We were, you know, raising deer and doing some different things, and, he took a pretty big interest in that, and I think his, from his motivation, it was more about the financial wherewithal, but he was also intrigued. And so, you know, we, we had some test specimens to, to really work on, and deer as a whole, whitetail, a lot of go, what goes in one end comes out the other. They're not really good at absorbing and metabolizing or breaking down initially what they consume. And, you know, although they have a similar type system or a digestive system to a cow, they're very, very inefficient, whitetails are, at breaking down and metabolizing, um, you know, around 50% less efficient. And part of it is because the whole cycle of time that they take to try to break their food down is shorter. And um, also, if you think about whitetail deer free range, they're not getting all the digestive aids and things that cows are getting to help maximize uh, their growth and their potential. Um, so there's, there's a definite difference. There in the in the high fence, uh, we developed a product called that we now today call Core Infusion, which has a lot of those digestive agents and a lot of those things that are you know it's very natural based, uh, just like our plants, our fertilizers, and the things that Killer Food Plot produces. Our Core Infusion seed is made to come in line with what nature kind of intended, and we get a lot better results in utilization, metabolization, and building the body of the deer with the Core Infusion pellet seed, just like we do with our Groganics fertilizer when we come in line with the soil and the root development on a plant 
our uptake is much more efficient than a synthetic type fertilizer, for instance. Okay, so now I'm kind of painting this picture in my head. You and your brother, was it your brother or cousin that started? Uh, my cousin. Yeah, okay. my cousin. So you guys started this essentially deer farm and were raising deer. Um, and now, did you do it just so you can see the nutrition value in the products you were developing, or did you guys take it a step further and, you know, use the urine and, I mean... Oh, we use the urine. That's a funny story. <laughs> yeah, it's a really <laughs> funny story. So we we uh, developed uh, a name, a brand, and it was called Real Deal Buck Lure. And so we would sell it to all the local stores, and, you know, we were, we were able to sell a uh, bottle. It. We had some team does and yeah i probably don't have time to go into all the detail but uh yeah i i raised um we raised quite a few deer at one given time but some of our does were tame and so every time we came into the pen they literally would walk up they would greet us and then they would squat and pee and so i said to my cousin you know my cousin and i were like man we need to start capturing this and, and doing something with it and so we came up with the new the name real deal buck lure and got the name patented and all that stuff, and so it was all legit. And we started bottling, selling, and that really helped offset a lot of our costs. But for me, I just saw our dollars and cents going into feeding and food plots, and and I saw just a ton of waste. We had some struggles early on with our deer not being, uh, getting sick and losing a lot of weight, and we had a, a small pond inside the enclosure, and we had it. Uh, ended up having that tested, and we had a, uh, an, essentially a bad bacteria in the water that was causing an issue. So we we did end up fencing off the water source that was in that pond and having to control the the water source to the deer in order to improve that situation. But in the process of doing that, I learned a lot about the digestive system and understanding, which made me dig deeper and deeper. And of course, the engineer and me came out. And I'm kind of OCD, you guys know me well, and I'm kind of all into whatever I do. It doesn't matter what it is, right? So, except maybe doing the dishes, my wife the same kind of into that. But um, I get into everything else pretty intensely that has to do with white-tailed deer, and I really enjoy um, learning as much as I can and the efficiency of, of the ability to break down what they eat, the ability to um, absorb or metabolize post-ruminant before it basically pushed out the backside. And I just really realized a lot of the money we were sticking into our deer to try to raise them, they really weren't using very well. Hmm. So as I dug into that, I started to look at the, the different species of plants and how the how the texture of the leaf or the forage on that particular plant, how well or how lack thereof, uh, the deer were able to digest what they were consuming, and a lot of it ended up being filler, you know, just kind of dealing with hunger pangs, but it really wasn't delivering the, the nutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, the proteins that the, the deer needed. So I continued to ask more and more and more questions, and here I'm working for this other company, and I'm asking all these questions. Well, I was able to develop relationships with the seed grower, uh, growers that grew our, our products for us, and really get on the phone and spend some time and, um, ultimately, you know, make a trip out west and to meet them. And it's a very interesting process. I don't know, you know, have that show how it's made or whatever, but they've shown that at least one time, I believe, oh, that's on there. Oh. And 
it's a pretty cool process of how they harvest the seed, how they sort the seed, clean it, um, prep it, you know, in some cases coat, send it to the coder, um, and then they have to do test batches on the seed to see what the germination rates are and what the properties in the, uh, of that particular seed species are. But it's very interesting to a level that I just wanted to dig in and, and get a better understanding of how if I plant did a purple top turnip, purple top turnips aren't all the same. There's different species of that. There's different species of clover. There's different species of um, or different varieties, if you will, of rye or or um, oats or any of those type of things. I mean, if you think about it, you drive by a cornfield or a, a soybean field, and there's all these different signs, right? These different manufacturers of the seed. Yep. Um, you know, they're crossing those things. You know, it's kind of what we do with some of our products, right? We cross them and make sure that we are pulling the best properties out of uh, two different species of clover when we make that cross. Uh, we've got some new clovers that we've just introduced um, into our deep wood blend uh, this year. Last year we introduced them into our resurrection clover, and um, in the, later in the year we'll probably introduce them in the same one into our cold play, and that's our new crimson white clover. So crimson clover is an, an annual clover that produces a red flower, brilliant red. Um, you guys have probably seen some of those pictures on our website in the spring. They just really come up, and they almost look like a red caterpillar sticking out of the top. That's how the flower develops. And they're super brilliant red. Well, these I cross, are crossed with a white clover to have more white properties and about a 15 to 20% uh, increase in the tonnage production. Oh, and wow. I haven't been able to discern yet. We're still doing some testing um, on digestibility, but, you know, crimson clover is an annual. It's pretty soft and tender, and the digestibility is pretty high. But we, we believe that we're going to also see an Im- improvement in digestion. Uh, more of the, the plant will have white clover-type qualities, um, not only in productivity, and but also as, as far as the tonnage production, but also on the digestibility, so... So, Nick, that that sounds like you may have actually dove in and covered my first question. I was going to ask you um, how exactly do you come up with these specific, not not only seed blends, but seeds themselves. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of testing and trial and error. Um, Where is this all taking place? How long does this stuff take before you select an actual um, white crimson clover, for instance? Well, I mean, it depends on, you know, it depends on a lot of different factors, but, you know, it's, it's, it takes, it's a lengthy process. It's a, you know, anytime we introduce a new product, no matter what it is, whether we're making a change or we're trying to develop something, sometimes it takes, you know, two, three, four, or five years to develop, um, you know, depending on grafting to get the, to graft the plant from one to the other. Um, so two different species and then produce seeds and then you have to grow them. So, I mean, that, you know, that's a fairly lengthy process. Um, there's a, there's different facilities that will do those kind of things for you that will do your testing. So there's some organizations that we're members of that help um, validate our germination rate, validate our growth compared to what we did before to what we're doing now or what we're looking to do in the future. Um, so there's different companies out there that do that type of work for us. And, um, and, you know, and it's it's constantly, for me, you know, I don't sleep very often and my brain's always going and the wheels are moving. And, and so and I'm, I'm looking at 
every situation from, you know, very high uh, vantage point to say what what is coming, what is needed, where are their shortcomings, um, what challenges do we face this year, what what challenges do, do I see coming uh, in the future, depending on whether we're going to start to develop, um, for instance, high altitude, right? Our products are produced, we produce them and we grow them um, for several of our hunters out west that we put in huge fields for the elk and the mule deer. And most people aren't thinking about that kind of stuff, right? And so I, we're trying to venture out and we're trying to expand um, the offering into that category because people historically don't really think about that um, as a possibility, right? So Yeah, and no, elk, it's kind of unique, actually. I mean, we don't when we think yeah. of pots, we don't necessarily think about elk um, or, or muleys. But if you can grow it out there uh, in, that con- in those conditions, I mean... Should be what easier to grow here, or at least sufficient enough, or is there? Or is well, there there's no a lot more oxygen. Okay, a lot more oxygen here than there is out there. So high altitude is a little bit more of a struggle. Okay, depending on how high up you're planting. Um, we've successfully planted our deep woods blend. Elk, elk are normal grazers. They, you know, they graze on a lot of your cereal grains and your grasses and things. Right? They don't necessarily uh, historically wouldn't eat brassicas or right. radishes, you know, rape, turnips, those type of brassica blends, but we found that they actually love those, especially when they turn to sugar, right? But all those animals need carbohydrates. And um, even when I had a high sense, we raised some elk in there as well, and so, you know, we learned a little bit about their preferences. Now, I, I never really thought much about it, kind of put it on the back burner because I figured, well, they were in there and they're just willing to eat whatever they could get. It's always com- competition in the high sense. But um, but as we've planted with the guys from Outback Outdoors, Adam Wells is a huge um, contributor to doing a lot of ranch restorations and things uh, out west Colorado area specifically. And so we've done some knowledge transfer I don't really know a lot about that out there, and but it's inquis- you know it's very very interesting, and I'm kind of inquisitive. And he uh, was asking me a lot of questions about habitat in the Midwest, and he's got some properties that they hunt, and he wanted to do some improvement on as well. So, you know, it's it's a series of trial and error in some cases. It's a series of digging in deep and asking uh, you know experts in, in nutrition and um, different areas there is a lot more knowledge a lot more educational knowledge background experience available on whitetails um, than there were when I started 28 years ago at least people thinking about it as a, a livestock or as oh, a yeah for sure a business right so I mean not that they didn't exist back then but it wasn't as rapidly it wasn't as rapidly growing as it, it, it is today so yeah it's a craze now almost well, yeah. I mean, we love our white-tailed deer. I know they're my favorite. They're yeah. the number one big-game animal, so they're very, very – I have so much respect for white-tails. I just love them. So, I mean, that fuels me to do, do some crazy stuff just like the rest of us spend a lot of our <laughs> available monies and then maybe some that's not so available doesn't always make the wife happy. But, um, you know, to, to spending the hours we do. Luckily, my you know, you know, Tasha and I, we travel a lot and we spend a lot of time on the road doing a lot of things for customers, um, but we have to love it to do what we do because it's crazy <laughs> the yeah. amount of time we invest. 
So, Nick, I got a question, um, kind of maybe another topic. I know Jared and I really found soil sampling and testing a huge part of these food plots. I mean, the first maybe two years we started doing it, we just started ripping up ground and planting stuff. And, you know, we got decent results as far as product growing, but you notice deer weren't eating the product. And then over the years learning, okay, we had to do soil sample, add different nutrients to the ground. Can you kind of dive into the soil sampling? So I know you guys offer it and, like, maybe – what pHs you want to be at, or depending on what kind of seed you have. Sure. So, I mean, soil testing is, you know, right out of the gate, soil testing is the best $20 you're ever going to spend. I mean, that's what I talk about when I speak and do seminars or uh, talk to anybody about food plotting. You know, $20 investment is going to allow you to um, effectively make the most of your you know, maybe a couple hundred dollar investment in fertilizer and seed and have immediate results because that you get to think about a soil test as a blueprint for what's going on in your soil, right? So when you do a soil test, it's going to tell you what your levels and your percentages are in the soil of key ingredients in the recipe, as you will, because I talk about writing the soil recipe for someone or filling that out to make sure they understand they have it that recipe is going to um, determine what your success rate is. You know, there's pH is the biggest one because if your pH is low, 7.0 is perfectly neutral soil. And as an example, if you bought $100 worth of fertilizer at 7.0 or or neutral soil, 100% or $100 of the $100 investment is available to the plant. Okay. okay. Now, when you, when you drop that down from seven let's to use, six. Let's use, okay, yeah, six, good idea. Right, to six, which is pretty common. You know, it's pretty kind of, most people are around six or maybe a little lower, a little higher. But six, only $80 of your $100 investment is going to work with you, for you. Isn't that interesting? Now, $20 soil test. $20 soil test that you could have spent, you have 6.0 pH, you had no idea, so you went and bought the seed, you bought the fertilizer, it's like you kind of threw it up in the in the air, and you said, well, I hope it works, and you went back to watching the football game, right? Well, unfortunately, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot. If you don't get a soil test, you really don't know. And unfortunately, a lot of people's pH isn't even at 6 down in the five or the low five and at five and a half percent pH you're you're only um, able to tap into um, sixty five dollars of your hundred dollar investment is available to the plant now we're talking we're we're talking I'm sorry I misspoke myself forty five percent of your investment is available to the plant at five and a half percent and a five percent or at a five and a half percent pH. So literally you're talking six to five and a half versus six to seven. It's not a whole six and a half, but there's not a whole lot of difference, but the output is considerably more. And you were asking me about how you guys planted a food plot and the deer were kind of like, well, it didn't come up the best. Deer were kind of marginally interested in the food plot without correcting the soil. 
the plant itself is less palatable or less digestible. So the deer's ability to break it down. So it can be the difference between a well-steamed piece of broccoli is how I use my analogy. <laughs> a well-steamed piece of broccoli is still fibrous, right? But when you eat it, it kind of melts in your mouth, right? It breaks down versus an undercooked piece of asparagus, right? Asparagus is kind of stringy. It's kind of, you can almost peel back the, 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 uh, the forage and almost wash your teeth and it does get stuck in your teeth and you're like, man, it's really hard to chew. I don't feel like I can break it down. Well, that's the difference when you take care of your soil and you plant the right species of, of seed, the forage production is more, it's still fibrous, right? It is still green vegetation. Yeah, you can but still grow more like that plant, but they might, but you're saying the taste and, I think it still grow up and look nice, right? But they might not. Right, exactly. Okay. But it doesn't have the, the value and it doesn't have the digestibility, so then it wow. ends up being fibrous. It ends up being filler, so it goes in one end of the deer, and it comes right out the other side, right? And they're not benefiting from it. So you spend the same amount of time, in, in most cases, about the same amount of money to do, because lime is cheap to get your pH corrected. Uh, the fertilizer, you're already going to put the fertilizer down anyway, and you're already going to put the seed down. But you spend a $20 on a soil test, instead of wasting all those dollars or that $100, right, and say you were at 5.5% and only 46 of your $100 is going to work for you anyway, that $20 soil test is pretty cheap in the big picture, you know. It, oh, yeah. it could have corrected that pH for less than 100 bucks in most cases. Less than 50 bucks, you could have done pellet lime. Pellet lime is like $4 a bag or even less when it's on sale. And pellet lime uh, is very fast-acting and it can change and make available those nutrients the plant needs to be maximized, maximize your tonnage and also the digestibility and, and the quality of the forage. Now, when your pH is low, does that make the plant more bitter? Yes. That has okay. that has the potential. So the, the plant is more bitter. The the quality of the forage, meaning more fibrous versus uh, less, you know, versus more digestible. Um, the actual growth out of the plant and its ability to recover when the deer, if the deer do start to consume the plant and it starts to see that type of a pressure, it doesn't recover as quickly because it can't okay. get the nutrient uptake and it can't it can't replenish itself fast enough. So your food plot goes away super quick um, if they are even consuming it. You know. Gotcha. So now we, me and Jared, were talking. I'm. Uh, doing some habitat work at our family property up north in Mount Morency County. And the soil is pretty sandy, but there's a lot of ferns on the ground. And I've been told oh, yeah. that if there's a lot of ferns, that means there's a very low pH level. Is that true? Yes, that's true. So your soil okay. has a very high level of uh, acid and, and or low pH. Okay, good to know, good to know. Good job, Jess. You were right about that. <laughs> I know. I, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I like it. Heck yeah. And and to kind of go off of Jesse's point there, um, what would a very acidic number be? Would that be like 5, 5.5? Or are you talking even lower than that for a place where, like, where the ferns grow? Oh, no. Ferns, I mean, ferns will grow and, you know, 6, but they prefer they prefer something less than 6. Okay. Um to really thrive, so usually you're in that 5.5, 5.7, 5.5, 5, you know, or in the full, you know, in the high fours even, 
four seven four nine. Um, you know, I've talked. We've talked before, and when I started doing the Sentlock property several many many years ago now, the property was four point three pH, and wow. basically beach sand. You know, so it didn't. It not only had horrible pH, but it had no ability to hold any of the soil correction. It would just filter through it. So we had quite a task ahead of us. It was, you know, one of the more challenging projects at that point in time um, to build that soil. And, you know, we were successful in doing that in, in short order by pumping quite a few tons of our Groganics Hydration uh, Fertilizer Soil Builder back into the soil and, you know, have successfully, within a couple of years, transformed. And we were growing, you know, volleyball-sized turnips and growing Border Patrol 10-foot-tall but it, but it really took, um, you know, we were putting six, we were putting between five and six tons of Groganics hydration per acre, and that's about an eight-acre planting uh, area wow. that we created when we went into the timber management in there and stumped it. So, um, you know, it's one hundred thirty dollars a ton. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it, it's a, it's an investment into the long term, but it's, it does help to transform it quickly. And, you know, we're, as human nature is, we want everything to be instantaneous, right? So we're, we're constantly trying to find some products that give that. Now, with Mother Nature, okay. she doesn't, she moves at her own pace, but in the soil build and soil improvement, um, we've been able to successfully do it a couple seasons of, um, treating the ground with the Groganics. Now, will you see, like, a different color texture of the soil? Say, if you dug up a sample from day one and then two years later dug up a shovel full? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it literally, this property is up in Ludington, Michigan, and it, it was like beach sand. Had maybe a little bit of peppered in dirt, dirtiness to it, but it, I can't even call it dirty sand. We joke and say Michigan has dirty sand, but, um, <laughs> of course, you know, it has, it has the soil is, you know, dirty, heavy on the sand consistency, and the problem is that that doesn't have any holding properties. It doesn't absorb and hold moisture. It doesn't hold the nutrients. When you put lime in it, it just washes back out, and you find yourself continuing to pour money into it. So the Groganics Hydration and our Groganics Fusion, they build, you know, build the soil and replenish the soil and have some holding properties that help to start to capture and kind of net, if you will, and keep those nutrients suspended in the soil where the where they can continue to build layer and layer on top of each other and build that soil up for the long haul, in addition, providing what the plant, the new roots need to grow a successful food plot and grow some tonnage per acre, not just a little, you know, four to five inch tall food plot, but really grow um, 20, 30 inch type food plots. So Now, now throughout the, the process of getting the soil back up to par, are you guys still planting seeds and plants as you're mixing in the organics and everything? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we have okay. some, we have several species of, uh, of our, of our uh, seed blends that are made for those extreme conditions. Our climatized, uh, seed blend, which is our KFT climbing, vining, uh, pea, our forage, soybean, buckwheat, and trigger beets. That particular blend does extremely well in sandy soils, clay soils, um, even some gravelly type soils that have a little bit heavier content. The thing that climatized doesn't do so well in is if it gets really wet because the peas and the beans are legumes and they will, 
they will germinate quickly. But if they get heavily doused in water, if the water level comes up and they kind of semi-flood, um, they will mold. They will mold over and it will kill them. So they're made for those extreme climatized means, extreme heat and extreme cold. And that plant planting um, in the particular KFP species we have in that perform really well in that extreme drier to moderately damp uh, conditions. Where like our deep woods, you can plant that next to swampy areas, edges, same thing with our lethal winter oats. Um, they can be planted in, in dry, clay, rocky, um, and sand. So that's a pretty versatile plant, and it also doesn't need perfect pH. However, you still need to be correcting the pH when you plant the, both of those plantings. So if you had a 5.0 pH, I would recommend using pellet lime. If you can get if you can get ag lime in there as well, we want you to do that. And I can kind of explain the difference of the two because I know that's probably leading leading me. I can see already to that next question is how do we do this and what is the difference? Um, yeah, yeah. I pellet definitely... lime. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, because when you talk about the other lime, you know, you go in the farmer's field and see the big piles of lime out there. Yep. That's so, ag yeah. lime. Yeah, does that's it, the, there's a difference with how long they take to react and, or, uh, and work into the soil, right? That's correct. All yeah. Right. So a pellet lime can start to release bound-up nutrients in the soil and can start to allow... Uh, the plant to access those nutrients in about two to two and a half weeks, as long as you mix it into the soil and it starts to, it gets wet and it breaks down the pellets. So that pellet line is literally in small pellets, similar to like your synthetic fertilizers in a pellet. But this uh, pellet line is more fast acting. Now it starts at about two to two and a half weeks, but only lasts about three to three and a half months in the soil of doing that job. Pellet line, just like ag line though, one particle of pellet lime and one particle of ag lime have to come in contact with a particle of soil in order to neutralize and release the bound-up nutrients or to make accessible those nutrients to those new roots. So they they work in a similar manner. It's just that now agricultural lime, the big pile in the farmer's field, the big heavy stuff that you can only run out of an ag lime spreader to spread it, that starts working in about two to two and a half months versus two to two and a half weeks. But agricultural lime lasts, you know, two to two and a half years of doing that sweetening process. It's a slower, you know, it's a slower start, but it's a longer um, carry out and benefit. It, you know, obviously dollars invested, it will last you longer. Okay. Wow. And then, did you say how long the pellet lime normally lasts? Is that like a per season basis in terms of food plots? Where yes, it's about a two to two and a half weeks versus up to three months. So that usually gets you for a spring planting, spring summer, and then a fall winter type planting. So okay. you have to, you know, it would get you one or the other. It doesn't get you both. Um, and you do not, you do not put the same quantity of pellet lime down that you do ag lime. So if your soil test says I need to put 3,000 pounds of agricultural lime down to neutralize the soil and make it work. Um, you're probably going to be somewhere closer to a, a four, 450 to 500 pounds of pellet lime. And again, they're 40 pound bags, usually somewhere around three to four dollars a bag. Um, you know, you do 10 of those, literally you've got, 
you know, you're, you're looking at 30 to $40, right? So it's yeah. not a huge investment. Agricultural lime is usually by the ton, sold by the ton, and it's run somewhere between, depending on the year, between 28 and $38 a ton, plus an ag lime spreader to put it out. Don't make the mistake I did. I have one of those big 500-pound red funnel spreaders that goes yeah. under 900 or whatever they are in the back of my Kubota, and I thought, well, I could be smarter than this, right? And I could, I'll just fill it up part way. And so I only filled it a third of the way. And I was making my way back to the food plot. Everything was going good. And, and uh, I got out to the field, and I started to spread it. Of course, the field hadn't been worked up yet or anything. It was pretty bumpy. And I'm cruising along and stuff zinging out of there, and I hit a bump in those big, giant, three-inch diameter tubes that make up the frame of that big funnel spreader. Well, by the way, they're hollow. They have no structure, oh, <laughs> and no. they just collapse. <laughs> so here I had this, you know, brand, I mean, it was brand new, too, so it was a really bad lesson. It wasn't like it was, you know, two-year-old spreader. And the thing caved in, and I ended up having to beat it off my tractor, off the lower arms, beat the pins out of there, and get the thing back so I could even get it off my tractor. So there's one lesson everybody can, your listeners can learn from. Don't try to run ag lime out of a regular <laughs> spreader like that. Definitely get an egg lime spreader or take the bags and cut the ends open and sift it out kind of yeah. back and forth by hand um, and then work it in as an, as an option as well. Just, you know, a more physical labor. Okay. Well, th- that's awesome advice on the different types of lime there. Uh, thanks for that. I didn't know quite all that much about it. Um, I have one of my uh, soil tests in from last year and what else are you looking at when you're looking at these things? I mean, mine was a 5.4 pH, so that's obviously low based on our conversation so far. Um, and then, I mean, that's telling me for lime, it's telling me, depending on which seed I picked, it was 3,000 or 4,000 pounds of lime to be applied to amend the soil to what would be what, the, a 7, a perfect um, yeah, perfect neutral. seven, it, and it and it will tell you that, right? So whatever when the soil pressure you send it in, yeah, it's per, so that's per acre based on all the reasons, all the recommendations for soil correction will come in a per acre, okay. and they will come in a per thousand square foot. So you, there there'll be a breakdown for each on that bottom of that soil test that that we did for you last year. That seems like a and lot of lime. Is that a normal amount for somebody to have to use to amend their soil, or is that like, yeah, you got some problems going on, buddy? Yeah, that's, uh, that, I mean, you know, somewhere between 1,500 and 4,000 pounds an acre can be a reality in Michigan because we have really bad soil and it doesn't hold anything to gotcha. sustain it, and it doesn't, and our soil is acidic because of the type of trees we have growing in most places where we're deciding to plant food plots. We're around oak trees, maple trees, around pine trees, you know, just the the um, the standard type planting areas or the general planting areas and what type of trees and the acidic nature of them would require that. Yeah, and this was a brand new spot that had never been planted, um, as far as I know. Um, now, you were about to mention some other things. I see some other brackets on this soil test, where they're called ratings, and it looks like there's a color scale that goes from 
red to green, which is very low to very high, and there's a bunch of things listed here. Um, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium. What are what do those mean to us, and and what would that mean to you know somebody getting their soil tested, and then how would you amend those, or do you even need to? Yes, you do. So we're checking, you know, we're checking soil pH. We're checking the phosphorus levels. Um, as you alluded to, there's, yeah, very low, low, medium, optimum, and very high. Uh, we're checking potassium, and we're checking calcium, and we're checking magnesium levels. Um, one interesting note, if you are planting in an area where there's been a lot of livestock in years past, you know, a lot of cows and or horses, and you get a lot of those type of droppings, your magnesium levels are usually, like, off-the-chart high. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's not generally an issue, but, you know, you want to be in that optimum range for that. And if things get out of whack, um, you know, there's, there's uh, ways we can counter that. Calcium is really important for the finite root development as well as the tissue of the plant growing up out of the ground. So being more of that lush, um, the cell at a cellular level, it would be more of a, I'm trying to think of, more like a honey, if you could really drill in and look down and magnify the green forage, the stems and the branches of the plant, they'd be more kind of honeycomb effect or they'd be soft soft and supple as opposed to like really woody like, you know, like a more of a woody-type weed or plant. Um, again, like that undercooked piece of asparagus. And that calcium affects the quality of the forage and the digestibility of that forage um, dramatically. So the okay. other thing that you're seeing on that, on the test, um, I'm, I'm actually looking at one myself. I just called up one of my customers here. They... Uh, you know, you're looking at potassium, but potassium is also important to um, the the plant growth and the plant's ability to develop roots and to be able to establish itself. Phosphorus is one of those things that, you know, we really don't want to feed into streams and ponds. And we don't want to be overly high on that, um, especially, you know, in a synthetic form. But the reality is it's necessary for plant growth, so you have to kind of strike that balance. When you kind of follow down, there's a lot of other things you can look at for levels. Those are the things we're looking at, soil pH, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium. If we know we've had it, we've got a customer who's had some difficulties growing in a particular area before, we can look at boron, copper, we can look at iron, manganese. Um, we can look at some of these other things that are going on in the soil. One item that we really focus in on at Killer Food Plots, though, at the bottom of this soil test here is the organic matter. And organic matter is huge to holding nutrients, building the soil, and our organic hydration and our organic fusion have organic matter in the actual makeup of the fertilizer. That acts as a sponge or a holder, right? Okay, that. Nick, and before you go any further on that, can you explain to maybe some of the listeners who don't know what organic matter is. I mean, all the other items, you know, those are, they kind of spell themselves out. Um, organic matter, why is that important to, to us planting food plots, and, and what exactly is that? 
So organic matter is the the nutrients that make up. When you look at your particular soil, right, and you go up to start working it, and you shove a, soil, so, a shovel in there to pull a soil sample, and the first top three or four inches here in Michigan, it's pretty, pretty common to have that be fairly dark, organic, broken down plant and animal um, organism type soil, right? It has nutrients. It has the ability to feed and, and to, uh, to bring nutrition to the plant. That also holds moisture and will help keep nutrients suspended. But as soon as we shove that, sh- that shovel down through three or four inches, then we're suddenly into clay or we're suddenly into, exactly. um, in yep. most cases, the sand, right? That, that golden rod sand or even, even lighter sand. And that organic matter is really important to plant growth. It, it's going to contain your micronutrients, your, your macronutrients. It's going to contain those things that help to grow plants. The problem is there's only two to four or five maybe inches of it on a particular piece of ground. So what you want to be careful of is that you don't go gangbusters with a rototiller or you don't go gangbusters like I did early on in my own property up in years over lake and go crazy and start disking, thinking more is better again, and you start cutting deeper than that three to four inches, and all your organics sink down into that sandy soil, and they're gone. And now you don't have any holding capacity. You don't have the ability to hold the nutrients. You don't have any ability to hold the the pH is dropping out every year. Even when you're treating it, it's a constant battle. Then you have to try to fill that back up again. Wow, I never would have thought of that. Yeah, because that sandy soil acts like a drain, right? I mean, just drains it right out. Yep. And the organic matter, the level you're trying to target is, ideally, you're going to want to try to be up over 10. Now, that's very difficult to do without putting large volumes like we do with our Groganics Hydration, which, you know, again, we can sell it by the by the tote, by the 2,000-pound tote, or we can sell it by the, you know, we can deliver it in dump truck loads, which is what I did on the Sentlock property. Uh, we produce it here in Michigan. We can, you know, ship it anywhere in, in the country uh, via, you know, semi. But the, the organic matter level, is, if you can get yourself as close to that 10 mark as possible, that's best. I don't know what your soil sample showed for organic matter. This particular customer's soil test that came in this week that I'm looking at, he has a 6.5 pH, which is pretty darn good, but his organic level is only 1.1. And that tells me that he's probably got a little more clay, he's probably got some other capacity, even those organic levels low, that he's supporting and being able to maintain or he doesn't have high acid-producing trees and things around him to be able to have a 6.5. Okay, yeah, mine was somewhere on one plot it was a 2.1 and the other one was a 2.9. I don't know what that says, but... Okay. Yep. Is that your property down in the Jackson area? Yep. Michigan? Yep. And the yeah, plots so came in great last more clay. year, but, um, okay. Well, yep. that makes sense then. More clay. Okay. Yeah, more clay, so the bottom's not dropping out. So, you know, you may still have low pH there, but you you don't have that filtering, right, that, that flushing out or leaching out of the nutrients and then dropping out of the bottom um, of the food plot. Wow. I did not know. Or the seed bed. Okay, so and one more thing on that, you could essentially what set your tiller at a specific depth, but make sure you keep that depth each time you till, or what would you do? There? Right, right. So 
what's really important, um, there's there's several different benefits to it. The the disking and tilling at the same depth time and time again is important for a couple different things. A, you're, you're trying to control you're trying to control the um, you try not to overdo it so that you're pushing the nutrients out of the soil. That's one issue. The other side of it is that you want to disc or till at the same depth time and time again because you don't want to introduce grass and weed seedlings back into the seedbed um and have new weeds and grass seedlings to overcome, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure does. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you so know, that's something we teach people in the food plot seminars we do, and is to not, to, or to try to maintain a similar depth in our tillage or, or rototilling to, to try to control that and to keep that, um, optimize. You still have to work the lineman, right? We talked about that. It has to be worked through the soil in order to neutralize, so you need to move that lime around so it's coming in contact with different, the particles of soil, and you need to constantly be moving it around so those nutrients can be released. So that's important. Um, you also want to work your organic matter in. You want to, you want to create, um, a network of oxygen flow in the soil. So that's important. That's why you want to work oxygen from the atmosphere into the soil. Very, very important. Um, and so tillage is, is an important piece. But every time you work the ground, you also are breaking down your organic matter in your soil, right? And most of the time it's because you're whatever living organisms, like in our organics, we're introducing the bacteria that are breaking down the green vegetation you sprayed with Roundup to kill and turns it in, or any other type of vegetation that gets turned in, they're munching away and they're turning it back into the things the plant needs. Uh, in order to grow, it's very important also to the fungi that is in our, as part of our biological package in our organics, that creates a spider webbing effect and it's creeping and crawling through the soil. It's living, the living fungi, a healthy fungi, and that is creating layers. And every time you go in with a disc or a tiller and you cut that, you're literally cutting that into pieces and so affecting uh, the soil's ability to hold and suspend what you're putting into it. Wow. A little, confusing. A little confusing. But well, there's just, I mean, it just goes to show, um, you know, kind of why we're doing this podcast and having guys like you on here. I mean, we literally just talked about soil samples for, I don't know, 20 plus minutes. I mean, there's so much you, that people don't know that we don't know that, um, you know, it's great to talk to guys like you and try to figure this stuff out. There's a lot going on down there. There is. It's, now, the other side of it is people can be like, wow, I'm afraid of doing the food plot because it seems like way beyond my, you know, my education or my grade level or whatever I've heard, heard people say. No, we're here to help, right? We're here to help simplify this thing. If yep. you can take a shovel out in your field and you can stick it in the ground three to four inches and kick the vegetation out of the way and then take a small scoop and put it in a five-gallon bucket six, seven, eight times throughout the, the entire, a specific food plot, then you can fill out a piece of paper and send it in to me, and my agronomist and I can evaluate it. We're going to take all that guesswork away. We're going to create that blueprint, 
and I'm going to give you a recipe that says you need either this much groganics or you need this much lime or you need to go to the elevator and buy this much. You know, if you don't buy groganics, you just want to buy synthetic fertilizer or some potassium or whatever is needed. We're going to take all the guesswork away. And we're going to make it very simple. This many pounds goes into your spreader, and you put it on this amount of square footage or this amount of acreage on your food plot. So it doesn't have to be this big mystery. Um, That's awesome. That they have to spend hours and years like I have. Again, we're here to be a resource to help them, uh, you know, navigate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I think I think Jared was kind of scared when he saw his Lyme results. Yep. He was thinking to himself, how am I going to fit two tons of pelletized lime in my college girl SUV. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, my, my I thought that was Mary, Mary Kay. Uh, I thought that was Mary Kay uh, SUV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. She gets good gas mileage. <laughs> That's all right. Nothing wrong with that, man. you gotta, you got to always be fiscally responsible. Oh, it's definitely so, yeah. nothing more than a glorified golf cart, that's for sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, we got to poke fun at each other once in a while. Yeah. So, that's good stuff. So, but, yeah. I got a question on, um, you know, I know we've, we've tried some frost seeding in the past. Can you kind of touch on that? And do you have any seeds that are good for frost seeding? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Killer fruit plot seeds. Uh, species that we've been talking about, you know, our clovers, we have a hard seed content, so there's a regular rating and percentage germination, and then there's the hard seed rating as well, so that helps increase your success in your frost seeding. So our resurrection clover, which is our KFP six different clovers, uh, those can be frost seeded. Our KFP chicory um, uh, can be frost seeded. Our clovers do a lot, uh, do very, very well. Our chicory does okay being frost seeded, um, depending on, you know, when you do it in the, the, the uh, soil consistency. But it, it does, it performs pretty well. Our cold clay does really well, which is our KFT clover chicory blend. Um, or, I'm sorry, not clover chicory, our clover and our alfalfa blend. And then we've got a couple annuals in there as well. Um, those, those are the three particular species that we would frost seed. I believe our our success has been pretty high with uh, deep woods blend as well, that you can frost eat that blend out, which has a cereal grain, Nebraska's, um, our KFC clover that I talked about, our crimson white clover, and then radishes in it as well. So that, that seems to do okay. The interesting part of the frost eating piece is people are like, well, what does that mean or when do I do that, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, go ahead and, and dive so, into that a little bit for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, so frost seeding, frost seeding would be happening when the frost is starting to come out of the soil, right? Mother, we're, we're transitioning between seasons. Um, you know, we're getting the snow, we're getting the cold night, the frost is still on the ground, and the frost is starting to come out, what we call heaving out of the ground. So when that's happening, there's often road restrictions, right? You can't drive big equipment. You'll see all these signs show up on the road. Uh, you know, no heavy equipment driving on secondary roads, etc. What you're seeing there is that the soil on the ground is very volatile. There's a lot of movement happening. When that uh, when that movement in the soil is happening, it can help to draw 
between between the soil movement and the snow, moisture from the snow and from rain can help work in naturally the seed into the top a uh, couple centimeters or whatever of the soil and get that good seed soil contact to happen. When you're dealing with small seeds like clovers and alfalfas and, and chicory, when we plant them in the nicer weather in, in the spring or in the summer or fall, we we want those particular seed species to be right on the surface of the soil. We literally want to dent them into the soil. So instead of going to work the soil, say we have a, a spot where we've plant, planted a brassica plant, like our KFC carnage brassicas or our deep wood plant, or maybe somebody planted just, you know, from the grain elevator or whatever, one's got some turnips or rape or radishes, and they planted that last year. They probably got all their grass and weeds killed off in the fall and did their normal steps. They planted these brassicas, so they have a very clean, available, ready canvas, right, a soil seed bed. The canvas of that seed bed is ready to receive ice frost-seeded resurrection clover or a frost-seeded chicory or cold play. And what that means is that literally putting the seed in a, it just in a, a broadcast seeder, just hand seeder or whatever, like we would do in the fall or in the early spring when the weather is nice, and you just go out there and you spread it out over the snow or over the, maybe the ground is open, and it's in between, and then you just walk away. That's it. That's all you do. No fertilizer, no anything. Just put it out there. Let Mother Nature, the ebb and flow and the heating of that soil as that frost is coming up, get a couple more snow, some more rain, let that work it in and get started, and it germinates, and it starts to establish itself. Importantly, to do it ahead of the grass and the weeds. And because you're not turning the soil with a mechanical uh, device, whether a tiller, a disc, a drag harrow, you're not reintroducing grass and weed seedlings back into the seed bed either. Remember we talked about that consistent depth of tilling. You're not tilling anything. And because you're not tilling the ground, you're also not breaking the organic levels down in the soil. So they're maintaining. Um, And the seeds are able to get established, start putting down their roots, and start growing some green vegetation out of the ground. Wow, that sounds kind of like a no-brainer. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah, so that's for an existing plot. Now, you know, I talked about that clean canvas. Now, if you have and you want to start a brand-new spot, uh, you may do that. However, you generally are going to have grass and weeds that have an established root structure, even though they're not really growing out of the ground and it may seem like it's okay. If you have not effectively gone through and dissed and tilled and sprayed and dissed and tilled and sprayed a a couple of, at least for a couple of seasons or one full year, maybe done a spring-summer plot and done a fall plot again, you're probably going to have so much competition from the grass and weeds that have an established root system underneath the ground it would be very difficult to have any longevity. And with your perennials, like the resurrection clover, the chicory, and the cold play, those are perennials. They're made to come back for three to five years um, with minimal, you know, mowing and fertilizing applications. If you do not prepare that seed bed or if you're not frosting over a prepared seed bed, they can still start and they can still establish themselves, but you're almost guaranteed that the grass and weeds are going to come back with a vengeance and try to choke what you've planted out. So 
at that point, it's very expensive to treat grass and weeds that are established in the ground without busting up their roots by turning the ground and getting the roots kicked up to the surface and being able to kind of, anytime you take a shovel and you dig some roots out, right, you shake it off and everything's kind of held together, right? You're kind of trying to shake that yeah. dirt out. The same principle that when you turn the soil and you, you, you break up that root system, uh, you have a better chance of not having it reestablish itself and compete with your food plot, if that kind of makes sense, and why why you'd want to work the ground up a couple times before you try to establish a long-standing three- to five-year perennial that you're constantly competing uh, or, or that you have constant competition with. Wow, that's that's great information. So a you can, kind of, kind of to summarize that, you can frost seed on both a, an old existing food plot with a with a now blank canvas from last fall, or you can uh, frost seed onto another area where you plan on, on growing a plot or this the seed. But you're you're better off with the the bare soil where the weeds and grasses have already been killed, um, at least for competition and um, fertilizer er, um, glyphosate or or um, weed killer type product than compared that's, to the one where it wasn't a blank slate. Yeah, yeah, and it's not to say you can't do that. So if you were a turkey hunter and you want to go frost seed some resurrection clover or our cold play, which is great for turkey, turkey hunters, yeah. you could do that in a spot you've never planted before. But I just don't want the expectation that you're going to have this beautiful, lush, you know, golf course driving green uh, <laughs> result. Um, you're right. going to have that competition come back, right? I mean, killer food plots, our seed species are high germination. They're very aggressive, right? They are they are going to fight for their real estate against grass and weed. But to really have the, the greatest success, you want to do it on that, that clean canvas. Yep. Um, if you are going to want to just benefit from a turkey hunter or provide some nutrition for your deer with the idea that you're going to come back in uh, mid-summer or maybe late summer, early fall to put in a fall food plot, by all means, frost seed it in. No, you're going to get the grass and weed competition, but you're going to come back and spray that with some with some glycosophate or a Roundup-type product, and you're going to kill that stuff, everything off again yep. to retill. That's not a problem. Absolutely do that. So, you know, that's a good way to provide your deer with some uh, with some high protein, which whitetails need. We'll hopefully get into that discussion here coming up. But protein is king in a whitetail diet, so the sooner you can get it, the better. Mother Nature, you never know when she's going to start supplying um, any kind of nutrition here in the spring, and depending on what the weather's doing. So it's a really good idea to get some to get some resurrection clover um, or some cold play or some chicory or some combination of those in in the uh, food plot in for your deer as soon as possible in the spring. Awesome. Well, that's that's great information, Nick. Um, we are actually we're over an hour already. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover before we wrap this up? I want to keep it uh, short and sweet for you and respect your time. And also, I uh, plan on inviting you back, or we plan on inviting you back real soon, so um, we can always cover some more things then. But is there anything else today that you'd want to cover? No, I just, uh, I guess in closing, you know, soil test, soil test, soil test. Yep. Uh, they're available on the website right now. You can go to the killerfoodpot.com, click on products, soil testing. You can order a soil test. If folks do that, send it back in. Um, if they have questions on how to collect, it'll tell you right on the collection form how to do it. If you have any other questions, 
Facebook us, Instagram, email us, give us a call, uh, whatever works for them for best communication. We will help to, again, erase the mystery and, and make help to clarify it. And then we will support you after the test comes back, the results. I'll have them with me. Tasha and I are pretty mobile on the road all the time, but they, they're right in our email, so I can pull them up while we're, while we're uh, out on the road. I can review them with you and uh, get you, get you uh, set off on the right foot. Make sure that, A, you know what you need to correct the soil and that your, your, um, your selection of seed is the right one for the soil you have so you have immediate success. Besides that, I look forward to coming back and talking more about the organic fertilizer, some of our exciting new blends and our that will be coming to the Killer Food Plot website soon, which is our smoke screen. It's a new screening product. And our new White Rage, which uh, people are excited about. And then another cool soil product is called Retain. It's, uh, it's a 100% organic pellet that absorbs moisture and nutrients. And talk about a, a product we need in the upper Midwest and and those areas of heavy clay, sand, rock. This is a this is a solution product. Once again, you know, I'm looking at the problems that are out there. 100% organic, last three years in the soil. It's coming to the Killer Food Plot website, hopefully in the next two or three weeks. Um, but there will be more and more information on our Facebook and our Instagram, so stay tuned, plug in, uh, like those pages, and reach out to us for further uh, further information. So I appreciate you guys having me on today. Oh, awesome, man. That's awesome, man. Yeah, thank you very much. That was a lot of great information. Jesse, do you have anything else you want to cover? No, you know, we kind of touched on uh, most subjects, but I definitely want to get you back in here, Nick, and talk uh, a little more about deer nutrition um, and kind of dive into that subject a little more. Um, But, no, man, that's that was a lot of information in a short period of time. I'm sure our listeners are going to love it. And <laughs> hopefully it gets more people out in the woods, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the, thing that I, the only thing I want to close in is that, you know, we're so serious about our deer, and we're very – a lot of us take this stuff extremely serious, and I, and I, of course, do. I told you I'm OCD about it. But, man, just remember to have fun. Remember to get your family involved, get your buddies involved, get out there, and don't, don't make it so serious – that you can't have any fun because if you're putting in food plots, you're going to be seeing more deer. That's more fun, right? When you're out in the woods, you're getting the activity. That's more exciting. When you're, when your kids or your nephew or your niece or whatever, your wife, she might actually take some interest getting her out there. <laughs> we're really big on family. We're really big on family. We're really big on, uh, you know, getting people out in the outdoors and food plots are a great way to do that. And they're a huge, uh, huge asset to enjoying it and having greater success. And so that's really what, you know, we want to we want to encourage people to do is, is get involved. We'll be more than happy to answer questions myself or my staff. And, uh, you know, let's have some fun with this whole hunting thing and the food plotting. Well, well said. Well said, buddy. Nice job. All right, Nick. Well, thanks again. We appreciate your time, and uh, we'll touch base again soon, sir. Thank you very much. Oh, oh you bet. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks, thanks, Nick. Nick. Bye-bye. All right, right, everybody. Well, I hope you uh, took some notes. I know I'm going to be looking at my soil test a little bit differently this year. Um, (laughs) What about you, Jess? What did you think about all that? Yeah, you know, um, I think Nick made it clear that soil tests are very important, which I know 
myself and you learned uh, a few years ago. Um, definitely excited to get a shovel in the ground and do some soil tests. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was a lot of good information, and uh, yeah, I'm definitely. I thought it was all about the pH, which plays a big level or a part in it, but um, definitely going to start looking at the other factors of the soil. Yep. Yeah, well said. I think uh, now's a good time for everybody to go out and grab a few core samples or grab a shovel or the bucket and, uh, you know, get get that soil ready to test. So, All right. Well, thanks again, everybody, for listening. I just want to personally thank you, Jesse and I. You know, we're, we're new at this, and we're trying to get some good information out to the listeners, and uh, we appreciate all your feedback. Let us know. Um, we're on Facebook. You can reach us there. We're also on the habitatpodcast.com website. You can listen to all our episodes there. You can also find us on the Apple iTunes or the podcast app. Uh, if you just go up there and search Habitat or Habitat Podcast and you look for our logo, you'll be able to see us and uh, get our episodes there. And just please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And, uh, you know, we're always trying to make this better for you. So thanks again, everybody, and uh, signing off till next time. Yep, thanks, guys.